Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to uh, have today Tom Walsh with us to talk to us about reports from the field. Uh, there are no uh, conflicts of interest declared for this talk, and uh, John Lurie is going to introduce Tom. John, as you know, is a professor of medicine, of TDI, and of orthopedics, and he is the section chief of hospital medicine. John, come tell us about Tom. Well, it's really a pleasure to, to be able to introduce Tom. I've known Tom for a long time. He's started out as a physical therapist by training with specialty in, in spine care, um, and he was at Dartmouth and instrumental in setting up the, the multidisciplinary spine center here when it first got started, um, and we were involved in a number of, of projects together there. Um, looking at patient-reported outcomes and, and some other things. Tom then went on to get his Ph.D. at TDI, and he teaches in the Masters of Healthcare Delivery Science program. He's still an adjunct uh, appointment there. He's also an associate professor of community medicine at Oxley College of Health Sciences at the University of Tulsa. Um, he... Uh, has been uh, for the past several years out in California founding uh, a healthcare consulting company. Um, he's now back on the East Coast in New York. And he's had a very varied career. Um, when I look at all the stuff that Tom has done over the years, it seems to me that he's spent his time trying to figure out how to get people and institutions and systems to do the right thing. So the right thing for me to do is to sit down and listen and learn from Tom Walsh. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and more than a little bit nervous. Right? I moved here in 1998 as a physical therapist from a really small town and um, got to meet John, got to meet Jim Weinstein. Um, and I remember the first day that Jim kind of grabbed me by the shoulder and he said, let's go to Grand Rounds. And I came and I sat in here like you are now, and I looked up at the speaker here, and I was like, this is like television. This is just the coolest thing ever. And to be standing up here is just really a pleasure for me, and, and I hope I do a good job. So um, let's see. Get this working. That'll be the first thing. Oh, bear with me. We had it set up and it worked. Any ideas, Kelly? I did the F7 thing again. Okay, so it's not a. You're clearly talking to the machine, so that's my issue. Right, but it's not staying. Yeah. Where's my. I would probably try disconnecting and then reconnect. Really? Yep. That's going to be. Yeah, so now you've got your computer back. And before you open the slideshow again. Want me to put it in? Want me to put it in? 
No, don't okay. don't start it before you before you reconnect. Get it, in, Rick. Yeah. So try again getting to getting to it. No, it's it, it's it's yeah. something about your computer talking to the So I know where I want to start, so I'm going to start talking. Yeah. So we've got some professional help, right? That's that's good. Um, I know that the next what the next slide would be. It'd be a picture of Jack Winberg, um, a picture of J. Allison Glover, a guy from Scotland in the 1930s, and a little symbol from the Institute of Medicine. And my point there is that um, what I want to talk about is moving from understanding the uh, warranted and unwarranted variation in the way that healthcare gets delivered, the things that TDI is famous for, to trying to improve the value of healthcare. And we're trying to improve the value of healthcare through changing the way that healthcare gets paid for. And the, the, the third slide is this little graph that shows um, a fee for service bubble and an arrow going down over time that we're going to be reimbursed less and less on a fee for service basis over time. There's also a little bubble that's called fee-for-service plus, right? And that's where we're getting paid fee-for-service wise, but it, there really, there are bonuses and penalties associated with it, and that arrow is going up gradually. And right near it, there's a value bubble. And that's um, still some fee-for-service basis, but really tied in more to outcomes that matter to patients and the cost associated with achieving those outcomes and rewarding institutions and individuals who can deliver greater value. And that arrow is starting here now and going up steeply over time. That's kind of the trajectory that we're on, right? If we're going to be delivering, we're gonna be thinking about value in organizations that, um, that I've worked with like here and work with others, if we're gonna be delivering value and trying to understand outcomes that matter to patients and our cost, what I wanna talk a bit about today are those outcomes and how we assess outcomes that matter to patients. We do that, <clears throat> how are we doing? <laughs> I just can't. Can we, um, if we, this has the presentation on it. Can we plug that into this computer? Oh, certainly. Let's just try that. I know I should have hung out with you. <laughs> I felt it when you left. <laughs> it's one of those days, if anything can go wrong, it has. Well, in the grand scheme, this isn't too bad. No, that's just going to download the drivers first. So, while this is going on, I'm going to I'm going to talk about patient reported outcomes, 
and people who are familiar with those terms usually are familiar with it from a research standpoint. If we do large trials, we're often nowadays asking patients to tell us about their health, right? How do they perceive their general health? How do they perceive their mental health? And we'll look at those as secondary outcomes along with the outcomes that we traditionally care about. Some trials go as far as powering the study based on those patient-reported outcomes. This, it's not all that common, right? They're still pretty new, right? So patient-reported uh, patient outcomes in research are how most of us are familiar with it. Then we have folks um, like Corey who are using patient-reported outcomes as part of registries. And people who are doing that and trying to learn from it, they realize that there are different types of patient-reported outcomes. There are general health um, outcomes, condition-specific outcomes, patient-generated outcomes. This one better? All right. Oh, I'm going to hang out till you get to the right screen. Yeah. So just to see, I wasn't making it up. There's Jack, right? And there's Dr. Glover. He's an interesting man if you don't know about him. The, the thing, and so um, I like to show this slide and then just do this. This is kind of the mess that we're in, right? And that's what kind of makes things so difficult right now. We're getting pulled in different directions simultaneously, right? But my proposal to you all is that we can get through this quite nicely if we focus on the outcomes that matter to patients. Because if we can demonstrate that we're able to improve outcomes that matter to patients. Nobody is talking about paying providers or institutions less if they can demonstrate that people get better through their care. So if we improve our ability to show this, we're going to be fine. If we can show that we get good outcomes and keep our cost the same, the way division works, that's higher value, right? If this gets bigger and that stays the same. The home run is for this to get bigger and that to go down, but that's really hard. So the big thing first is to work on measuring outcomes and trying to improve those outcomes. Patient-reported outcomes are the way to do it. You've seen them in research. This is from the sport trial that John was instrumental in, right? Registries, we see um, general health or generic surveys, condition-specific surveys. They come in different flavors. Now, um, through MACRA and MIPS, the government hopes to reimburse based on changes in these outcomes. Um, but all of those ways, research and reimbursement and registries, all of that data that's being collected from patients goes to a data warehouse or a data lake, whatever analogy you want to use, and it comes back to you so you can learn from it, but you get it six to 10 months later, right? And so that's a little bit like trying to cross the street today blindfolded, but we'll show you some pictures of what average traffic looked like in the past, right? To really harness patient-reported outcomes, we need to use them at the point of care. Right? And with different apps, different laptops, we can collect this information from patients right when we're about to see them. Right? And apps make it look fancy, right? 
but this is stuff John and I were doing back in the last century. This is actually from a patient that I saw in 1999. So here's our condition-specific survey. We're asking how well the patient who has backache can perform daily activities. The dotted line on the SF36, this is a general health survey. The dotted line is the age and gender adjusted norm for this. So if you were fine and you came in, we'd expect all of these bars to be up to that line if this was a 40-year-old male, right? Look at this. We realize the guy is here for a backache, but he's telling us that every aspect of his life is substantially affected. And I can see this at a glance. Right? It's like when you get used to looking at MRIs, you just look at it and say, that's trouble. Back in 1999, I didn't, what I used to think was, we're going to need a full team. All right? This is going to take the whole happy meal, not just PT, not just a surgeon, not just cognitive behavioral therapy. When I look at it now, See, don't prescribe opioids, <laughs> right? Here's the MRI for the guy, right? So MRIs of the lumbar spine, if you're not used to it, he's facing this way. We're slicing top to bottom. These are the vertebral bodies, right? In between are the discs. We see some, um, that's a Schmorl's node. These are modic changes named after dead white guys. Um, the discs are bulging. This is age-related change. When I give this talk in front of a room full of orthopedic surgeons, I say, who would operate on this? There's always a couple that will raise their hand, right? And I'll say, well, is the operation going to help this guy's ability to fulfill his role? And he's telling us that it's hampered because of his emotions. And those hands start to come down a little bit, right? So this is additional information that you can view as quickly as you could view the MRI. And I don't know a surgeon that likes to go see a spine patient without the MRI. But we're all walking in blind to this type of stuff if we're not collecting this type of data. This is another MRI. Here the person is laying on their back, feet facing you. Slice them like a loaf of bread. That makes this a kidney, that's a kidney, this is a disc. You can see at the back of the disc, there's a tear in the ligament that holds the disc in place. And some of that disc material has um, herniated into the space where the peripheral nerve exits to go down to the leg. This is a herniated disc. If I show this to a room full of orthopedic surgeons, they'll trample me to go operate on this. Right? This is classic. It's, it's an easy operation. You cut through here, move that bone, take out the disc, free up the nerve. This is the woman's survey when she came in. Not after the op, this is before we did anything. It's hard to get a better outcome. So if we just look at the MRI, we just do a history and a physical, right? We think that's a classic surgical case. With this, we're like, oh, well, wait a second. It's going to be hard to get this better, and there are risks with the surgery. Right? Third case, <clears throat> so can't sleep. His mental health scores low. 
his ability to fulfill his role, however he defines his role, is limited severely because of his emotions. Here's the MRI. Again, guy's facing the left, right? Here's a vertebral body, vertebral body, vertebral body, um, disc, disc, positive white arrow syndrome. Um, <laughs> but the big thing to see here is that this disc has extruded to the rear and a baby piece of disc has broke away from the mommy disc and is right up here behind the vertebral body. It shouldn't be there. It's occupying space for this nerve. This is an extruded disc. Right? Surgeons love to work on this. It's going to help this guy's roll emotional score. Maybe. But we need to have that discussion. Right? If the, if the person is saying, you know, <clears throat> since I've had this leg pain for the last six weeks, I really can't function like normal and it's stressing me out. I can't do the things that I need to do. Maybe, right? If the guy says, you know, I've been schizophrenic since I was 22. I'm on good meds. I'm surprised those scores, I've, this is the best I've felt. It could have been worse six months ago. Surgery is probably, that becomes not as relevant. So it doesn't replace taking the history and talking to the person, but it gives us more information. And if we're collecting all of this data on each person and we're using the patient-reported outcomes at the point of care, which is the novel way to use them, that doesn't take away from the fact that we can still aggregate the data and learn from it. Right? We can start doing things. Here's the guy we are just talking about. Right? We can use the aggregated scores to, to really do this like Amazon. It's the Amazonification of decision support. Right? You order one book from Amazon, they say, people like you who've ordered this book also like these things. Patients like you, oh, here's a place that's pioneering this. These guys are in, um, in Austin. Um, Carl trained here, spent some time in the, in the Spine Center, so I like to show his face. Kevin and I just um, uh, wrote that. Um, here they're taking all of that data and information and looking at what happens to patients so they can start to say to people, someone like you with these symptoms tends to experience these outcomes. And I, I, I borrowed this slide from them. I don't really like it, but I didn't want to change it because it's theirs. Um, let me talk you through it. The bottom is the preoperative knee outcome score. Right? Higher is better. This is just the volume of patients. It looks like a normal curve because it's just volume. Right, so how many patients um, do you have at each of these points? This line is the proportion of patients who achieve a, a minimal clinically important difference in their outcome scores. And you see, when they operate on people who have relatively good function, they're lower on this, on this uh, Coos scale, most of the patients experience an important difference. But around 58, there starts to be this steep drop-off so that if they see patients who have a very high Coos score, the likelihood that they'll improve, have a, have a 
minimal clinically important difference in their score goes down. So that raises kind of a yellow flag for the provider. They can also look at mental health scores and Coos scores. And when they overlay those together, you realize that the mental health score, if you're 50 is average, right? So less than 50, right? Outcomes aren't as good. Real low scores on the mental summary score, outcomes aren't so good. It's nothing that you can't figure out, and it's not illogical. We can figure it out with a good history. On our best days, we're all really great at getting this information. But when we're behind, our kid's sick, the wife is unhappy, we don't always do a good job getting this information, and we have tools that can put it in front of your face and that you can share with patients to have discussions with them. When we have these discussions, we're talking about a term that Dr. Mully, right over here, invented a few years ago, making a preference diagnosis, helping patients understand what matters most to them and making sure that we're on the same page with them. Right? And we do that by telling them we need to work together. Right? Patients are sometimes intimidated when we start off, so we've got to make sure that they understand we're on a team. We lay out the options pros and cons of not just our preferred option, if I'm a physical therapist, not just physical therapy, but the, the treatment options that are available. We're trying to move the patient from having an initial preference to a more informed preference. And part of that is communicating risk and outcomes. So these patient-reported outcomes can be aggregated to help patients learn. We know that this is an important process. This shared decision-making process is important because we have a couple decades of research now that shows about 30 to 40% of patients change their mind when we provide better information. We don't always know if they're going to choose less invasive or more invasive things. You see that as we go down the list, it's surgery less, um, invasive less, surgery less. But down here, surgery more. And there's a lot of research left to be done about what patients end up choosing. But there's a consistent 30 to 40% of patients change their mind as we do a better job informing them of their options. So we could take something like physical function scores for all the patients that we've seen, aggregate them up, and say, here's patients like you. And for treatment A, there's significant improvement very quickly. The slope is steep. It levels off over time and declines as we age. That's what's, this is just time, right? Here's the age and gender-adjusted normal value. For treatment B, the improvement slope is less steep. Progress is a little slower. But eventually, the two treatments even out. And over the long run, treatment B is slightly superior to treatment A. Would you want to know this information about your treatment options if you were facing a treatment decision? Yeah. You could actually imagine two people, two identical twins, presenting with the same condition, and they could choose different things. Twin A plays the piano. 
right? Not very physical, right? Not a whole lot to do. You mean it'll get better over time? I think I'll do that. I don't want to be laid up with the surgery. His twin brother moves his piano, right? That's physical, right? And if he's laid up for too long, they can't do shows, right? You mean this? There are some risks, but I'll, I'll get better much quicker. I'd prefer that. Which twin is wrong? Neither of them. Because it depends on what matters to them. We can do it not only with physical scores, but with emotional scores as well. Right? Treatment A, steep improvement but then a decline as you struggle over time, and then variability in the emotional um, stability over time. Treatment B, gradual improvement steadily as you learn the new skills. Which would you choose? Who's wrong? We do a lousy job choosing four people. Imagine another job where 30 to 40% of people change their mind when they learn more after talking to you. So this shared decision-making process is an important thing. We can improve it with patient-reported outcomes, adding that data in. But how do we know if the, if the shared decision-making process was actually a good one? Right? Traditionally, we've looked at, was there concordance between the revealed preferences and the treatment chosen? That's kind of clunky. You've got to do it over a long time. We've had third-party people observe the process. <clears throat> but part of the work that I did here in a lab that Dr. Mully started um, as part of my postdoc, we looked at what's a patient-reported measure of the shared decision-making process. So we went through a process of doing a lot of interviews, finding out what matters most to patients, and using words that patients understood. Right? And we developed a simple survey, three questions. How much effort was made to help you understand your health issues? How much effort was made to listen to things that matter most to you about your health issues? And how much effort was made to include what matters most in choosing the next treatment? These kind of line up pretty nicely with that big arrow that I showed about the team talk, the option talk, and the decision talk. And you can text these to patients while they're walking out, right? We still send people in the mail letters that say, remember your doctor appointment six months ago, right? But that's, that's silly, but we're, we still do it. Here you can text it to people. They, they score zero to three, right? How much effort was made? Two, right? It's easy. You can take that information and provide it back to the providers or the clinic, right? And I helped do this at a <clears throat> One Health Nebraska. It's about 700 physicians across the state from 68 clinics. We did this at one clinic. <clears throat> Just trial it. And the orthopedic surgeon, one of the orthopedic surgeons, her scores when we were giving them back we, we calculate the number of the proportion of patients that give you a, a, a three, a perfect score, right? Only about 30% of her patients were giving her 
that highest score. And the other people in the clinic were all over 60. So she was way low. Right? I showed her the blue arrow. Right? Talked about, you know, gave her some references about shared decision making. Right? I think she read them. Right? But not much happened. Right? I showed her the questions that were asking patients. I said, this is how we're getting this score. She said, oh, this is helpful. And came back three months later, and her recent scores were over, over 80% of her patients were giving her top marks. I said, that is phenomenal improvement. I've not seen it before. We spend a lot of time, a lot of effort trying to train people in these skills. What did you do? So this is, I'm sorry you're having such a hard time, but now that I know the questions, when I'm seeing my patients, say, is there anything more I can do to understand what matters most to you? <laughs> I'll ask them. And at first, the academic in me was like, that's cheating. <laughs> right? That's bad. But then I went home, right, fly home, and I'm like, isn't that better communication with the patient? Why don't we just train, tell people what we're going to ask? Right? It could be a whole lot simpler. So this, this collaborate survey that I just went through is, is picking up some steam. Um, <clears throat> there's a VA in Bedford, Mass. that's providing feedback to primary care providers. Uh, PCORI is asking all investigators in the implementation track to use it more. I think it's got a lot of value. I'm not doing research into it currently, but from my own experience, just kind of out in the field, it's a useful thing. I also did some work with Navy Medicine um, in um, Jacksonville and San Diego, and I worked with um, one of the work groups was a group that came together to try to redesign the care for patients with hard-to-control diabetes. Right? That can be a very costly group. It can ruin your value score. Right? Just if you miss that group, because they show up in orthopedics, they show up in cardiology, it can, it can really do a number on you. This is a high-impact group to try to get a handle on. We talked about patient-reported outcomes. They chose a series of questions. One of the questions wasn't a question at all. It was a statement, and I became fascinated with that statement. The statement's, I feel overwhelmed by everything I need to do to take care of my diabetes. Zero's not overwhelmed at all. Ten is completely overwhelmed. Right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to think you could change diabetes to say my health condition and have it be for anything. We started seeing when patients were filling this out, they'd come in, <clears throat> they'd fill it out on a piece of paper because the Navy's know better than we are about having apps or computers. So just give the paper to the person in the waiting room. They circle the score zero to 10. We were seeing a lot of scores in the six, seven, and eight range. That was way higher than we anticipated. So we made a rule in that clinic that any time a score was over two, Whoever brought the patient into the room would say, thanks for filling this out. It helps us treat you better. Tell me about this score. What has you overwhelmed? You learn a lot. 
inevitably, that will lead to a, a rich discussion about what needs to be different. And you can make a new plan with the patient. And instead of just saying, there you go, here's your new plan, I hope you adhere to it, or I hope you're compliant, right? Instead of doing that, we started asking, how confident are you that you can do this new plan? Zero is not confident at all. Ten is you know you can do it. We then made a rule there that any time the score is less than eight, we say to the patient, four is not a bad score. What would you need to get over an eight? I'm dying to work with a research team that will help me look at that question because that's the key. This is what's mattering most to that patient right then. And if we miss it, we're not going to get very far. The hard thing about healthcare is that what you hear when you ask this question feels sometimes out of your hands. Right? The story, I didn't see this patient, but the story relayed to me. A um, woman asked her patient this, asked the female patient, what do you need to get over an eight? She said, I'll to control her diabetes. Right? Said, um, I need my husband to stop drinking. And the woman said, well, why do you, I don't, help me understand, why do you need your husband to stop drinking? And the patient says, well, if I tell you the truth, now that you've started asking this stuff, my husband drinks a lot. If he drinks too much and gets too drunk, he gets violent. He'll hit me or the kids. So when he gets home, I want to get him as, I want to feed as many calories to him as quickly as possible. The easiest thing to do is get Kentucky Fried Chicken or Burger King and fill him up so that it takes longer for him to get drunk so the kids are asleep. That's what she needs to take care of her diabetes. Now, that will bring a tear to your eye, did me. But if we get it wrong, if we don't know those things, you can change that woman's medicine 50 times. Right? And it's not going to it's not going to work, right? We need to get these things right in order to make progress, right? The medical diagnosis, mental and physical, the preference diagnosis, otherwise we're giving people treatments that they wouldn't have chosen if they had all the information. And we need to know their readiness to do the things that we're advising them to do. <laughs> but, but my efficiency, right? I need to be fast, right? I hear that all the time. You can't be wrong and fast. You're always going to be slower if you get one of those things wrong. Always. <clears throat> Patient reported outcomes, shared decision making, motivational interviewing can make you more effective then you can get more efficient. And I believe from using these for a couple decades now, that when they're used together in concert, you can get more efficient. They do not slow you down. You go faster. You're more effective and more efficient. And the conceptual model that I have for that that I'd like to propose actually comes from the Navy, Navy, Navy um, aviation. 
This guy's a fighter pilot. He developed the OODA loop. OODA stands for um, Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And he proposed for fighter pilots, whatever pilot can cycle through the OODA loop the most effectively and the most efficiently will win back when planes were fighting each other. Planes just drop bombs, now they don't fight each other, but this loop was created back then. And so he said, the most important thing is to make sure you're observing well, then orient your weapons, decide what to do, and that decision, when you're putting it out there, when you're pulling that trigger, you're really proposing a hypothesis. You think that this is going to work. Then you observe the action to know whether your hypothesis was correct or not. It's a test. And that information gets fed back for more observation, and the loop repeats. They've got a lot of data, right? We think we're flooded with data. And this is an old picture. Here's a new one. And when they have their helmet on, in front of their left or right eye, they get to choose. There's more information that's just in front of their eye. We can't really complain about being overwhelmed with data compared to fighter pilots. Right? It's a ton of information coming to them. Patient-reported outcomes can help us observe what matters most to patients more quickly because it's right here in front of our face. On our best day, we'll ask all these questions. When we're tired, sick, we might forget some. We get it wrong. We can't be efficient when we're getting it wrong. When you see a pattern like this, it helps you orient your team. If you're part of a multidisciplinary team or you have access to different providers, you start to get clues as to what team you're going to gather around to help this patient. If I see that pattern and I feel like physical therapy may not be the best thing for her, I'm not going to walk out in the hallway and try to find a surgeon. You with me with that? This pattern helps me orient my team. I'm going to walk out and try to find the social worker or the psychologist, right? Because the pattern here, the mental health score and the emotional scores are, both, are the ones that are most low. So I observe what matters most. That also helps me orient the team. I then go through a shared process of decision-making because I know if I do it just on my own, if I make the decision for the patient, I'm going to be wrong 30 to 40% of the time. Decades of research in multiple countries across multiple conditions has shown that. And then we're going to act but I'm going to do it by trying to understand what the patient needs in order to take the action that we've agreed should be the next step. Because patients will agree to a lot when they're with us. They want to please us. Just like you're nice to the waiter at the restaurant because if you upset the waiter, they might spit in your soup. Imagine how people feel about their health care provider and not wanting to upset the health care provider. But with this motivational interviewee aspect, we can help 
figure out the readiness diagnosis and help figure out um, how we should proceed. So the OODA loop in healthcare, observe, orient, decide, and act. Get these things right, cycle through it quick, then you can become more efficient. Get them wrong, you can't be efficient. It's going to take more visits. That's more cost than your value equation. It's a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> I like the eyes in, in this squirrel. Right. Um, so these are here, squirrels and butterflies. I want to talk about some currently popular distractions when you go talking around the country. <clears throat> these are terms that you see all the time, right, and they're exciting. The ability of AI to change the world. Big data, deep learning, data lakes. I like regression models, <clears throat> a beautiful dis uh, discontinuity model just makes me smile. Right? I like these things, but they're distractions to a lot of the stuff that we could be doing to help people right now. Um, network analysis is another fascinating thing, looking, how, looking at how organizations communicate between each other. Fascinating, computational. If you're interested in network analysis, look up Small Blue by IBM, their experiment. Fascinating. But if I go into an organization and I say, what proportion of your patients with diabetes have an A1C score over nine and have not been in in over six months? People will say, well, we don't really have big data yet. We don't have systems that can do this. And there's your big data solution. That's just division, right? Answering that question, and you can swap out A1C or diabetes for whatever condition you pay most attention to, right? But can you answer, who are the really sick people that I take care of who have not been in in a while? You don't need to wait for Epic 5.0, right? The trick is to get this kid the numbers, because he can do the division. All right? So it's about who collects the data, who organizes it, who interprets it and communicates it, who designs interventions to try to make things different or better, who evaluates the impact of those interventions. That gets tricky. All of this stuff, <clears throat> I try to make it sound very simple. Right? But we're dealing with people, and it's not simple, right? Simple is like being hungry, and you decide to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That'll cure your hunger. And if you follow the same steps for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you can replicate that peanut butter and jelly sandwich over and over and over again. It's simple. Getting a man to the moon is a lot more complicated. There are way more steps. But i tell you what, if you do the same steps in the same order at the same time, we can hit the moon with a rocket every time. It's more steps, it's complicated, but it's the same linear step 
step-by-step approach, you'll get the results you want. Complex problems are different. Complex problems are like raising kids. You might have a good one. You might have written down what you did, when, and how. It's no guarantee the next one (laughs) is going to be the same. Those are the type of problems we're dealing with, right? So changes in health and healthcare are easier to conceive than they are to raise to maturity. They're complex problems. We need to have a mindset that that's, prepares us for that. These type, this type of work is going to take longer than you'd like. It's harder than you dreamed, and there's almost always a crisis along the way. But to get through complex problems... Simple things help. Know your outcomes and your costs. Try to improve those two things and figure out how to share what you know across your organization. Right. <clears throat> so this type, of, this type of work can feel overwhelming. You guys, as a pioneering organization, are way ahead of most of the places that I've had a chance to visit. And if I give a talk like this, in front of a big group, I can see people start to slump, right? Like, he makes it sound, he's, it's nicer to listen to that than to read the journals, but I don't know what to do. And I recognize that feeling of not knowing what to do. It reminds me of the first job that I ever had. The first job I had was with my grandfather. Now, this is Luther. We're in front of the trailer that I grew up in. And a little, few years later, my first job ever was to help him. He'd plow fields on weekends to make extra money. He worked at a granite quarry his whole life. <clears throat> but on weekends, he'd help out other people around town and plow fields in the spring to get ready to plant. When you use one of these old tillers to plow, it leaves rocks that are too big. You've got to move the rocks. And in New England, this process leads to some beautiful things, right? But we were poor, and we didn't stack our rocks nicely. We just threw them on the side of the field, right? My first job was to pick up rocks after my grandfather had plowed a field. And I remember standing in front of that field thinking, son of a bitch, (laughs) there are rocks Everywhere. It's kind of what it feels like in healthcare right now. There's so much to do. Everything pulling us in different directions. All right, remember that first slide. So my grandfather came over, patted me on the head. He said, Tommy, start at your feet. Make what's right around you able to grow really nicely. And that's what I hope you guys can do. Pick up the rock at your feet. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to answer any questions. Keep talking as long as you like. Having been on the receiving end of too much health care recently, um, the impression uh, that you use SF36 and other very structured um, data collection devices of which I've filled out endless ones, it seems, yeah. um, is very constraining in 
in terms of the information provided, but I also understand the uniformity that that allows for analysis. Yep. Comment? Yeah. So the first, one of the things that we need to think about when we're asking patients to fill these out, particularly if the data is going into a data lake or a data warehouse, and we're going to get that information back later, we sometimes forget the burden that we're putting on patients. What I like about having it available at the point of care, I could walk into a room having and seeing the scores you filled out. And I'd say, can I borrow this for a second? Right. Say, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for filling this out. It helps me treat you better. Right. Tell me about this score. Right. So the richness that you feel is missing comes when I have the conversation. But I know where to start the conversation because of looking at the structured information. We need, to, we need to train providers. This is going to sound terrible, but we need to train providers to walk into the room and say, thanks for filling this out. It helps us treat you better. Otherwise, we're asking patients to fill it all out, and it just upsets them because they don't ever see it. Right? But if you've got complaints about, from patients who are saying, you know, this is a burden to have to fill this out, if you walk into the room and say, thanks for filling that out, it helps us treat you better, the complaints drop. If you say, thanks for filling this out, it helps us treat you better, tell me about this score, I want to know you better, complaints go to zero. It's a great talk. I'm thinking about um, the Spine Center and some of the really good successes you have. And it seems to me like one of the key features is that the data is integrated with the clinical situation. Like it's yeah. there, you're there, it's all happening at once. Yes. It seems like part of how things are unfolding is there's a little bit different planets. We have our clinical world. But there's whole segments of organizations that are generating the data, not necessarily the people providers, but data that will be helpful the number of Patients who are able to less than I are something, but more and more we're in different cultures almost. Yes. And I'm just wondering sociologically, what are you seeing in organizations? Where are people more successful at putting those together? Yeah. And where do they kind of operate as a business unit or a business yep. unit in sort of parallel universe? Yeah, that's a great question, and thanks. It, it's unexpected, but it's right on target, right? Um, the, or, the places where I see this working well, here's the advice that I give, and then when they follow it, seems to work. Some places have a hard time following it. But you need to think about the people and the processes that bring all that together and get those people together in a room regularly, whether it's monthly, quarterly, some way of talking about not just the numbers that are being generated, but the people and the processes that develop the loops to bring the data together. And now here's the key thing, right? In that same meeting, you need a couple patients at least, right? Whoever the end users are, the end beneficiaries of what you're talking about, need a voice in the room. The first thing that it does is quiet the grumpy, mean people. The grumpy, mean people that are in the room and try to resist change, they shut up when patients are there. So you just make sure you've got patience there for that. But once you get past the grumpy mean people, the patients have really good ideas. Really good ideas. And I can say that till I'm blue in the face. And if I say that in 10 institutions, 
two might have a patient in the room. I don't know what the hurdle is, but it's a, it's a big, big deal. Let me go over here, then I'll come. What success stories have you seen? You know, we're currently in a fee-for-service model and bringing these people in, taking away from your clinical time. Have you had any success stories in how to work within the current system? Because, you know, this person doesn't generate clinical income. The, you know, how do we do that? Yeah, so I like to... So I started collecting patient-reported outcomes in New York State in the mid-1990s when the Clintons were in the White House and patient uh, and healthcare reform was coming. Right? In the private practice that I joined, we were afraid that we were going to get paid less than we had been getting paid. Right? And I was young and naive, and I thought, well, how could that be? We have ads in the yellow pages that tell everybody we're the best, Right? But I realized that that's just hokey, right? It's like the sign at the coffee shop in Rapid City, South Dakota that says best coffee in the world, right? So I got really fascinated with how do we measure how we're doing? Because if somebody else is going to measure how I'm doing and then pay me based on it, I want to be the person in charge of measuring. I want to know. Right? So I typed up outcomes on pieces of paper and started handing them to every patient that I saw and collecting it, taking it home on weekends. This was before HIPAA, right? And doing some division to learn about my patients. Right? I was doing that, being a nerd, reading medical journals. At the back of a journal, there was an ad by a famous spine researcher from Iowa. He wanted to move to Dartmouth and start a spine center. And the ad said they'd be the first place to use patient-reported outcomes in clinical care. And I went to the drugstore and I bought a little Kodak camera and I took pictures of my patient-reported outcomes that already had ink circled on them and I mailed them to that guy. Right? I didn't come out and say it, but I just implied you can't be first. <laughs> right? And I got hired to come here and help do the spine center. But my point with that story is I don't, <laughs> I would like to know how I'm doing and assess it, and I'll build systems and processes so I know how I'm doing, regardless of how you'll pay me. Because if I can demonstrate to myself and anybody else that I'm making a difference in outcomes that matter to patients, nobody's talking about cutting payment to those people. So. Once you get that in your head, that what we're trying to do is create a healthcare system that's agile, a healthcare organization that's agile, ability, has an ability to learn, and can demonstrate to anybody that wants to look that you're having a meaningful impact. It doesn't matter what you call the reimbursement model. So that, that'll work. This approach works. Fee-for-service fee-for-service plus value or whatever the next thing you want to call. So there is some investment in creating those systems and processes. But I think it's worth it. Also, when you can demonstrate value, people seem to be happier about coming to work. And so look, nine out of ten of my patients gave me a three. Right? You feel kind of good. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you a question about tools? Um, since functional health is so important, SF36, whether it's on paper or on a tablet, is, is, is complex. Um, and we're able with depression to go from a PHQ9 to PHQ2 yep. 
have good uptake, high sensitivity, lower specificity. Yeah. Um, you know, are there tools, and I want in mind particularly, to measure functional health mm -hmm. um, in a similar fashion so that it's rapid, high sensitivity, lower specificity. You can ask that question, what's going on with, with emotional, yep. but you can find that out in... That is Watson and Nelson yep. put together the functional health status charts. Yes. Big uptake around the world, but yep. I don't see them in use here. Right. Um, and places where they are in use, they're still collected, put aside. Somebody's going to crunch numbers, and we're going to learn about it later. They don't use them at the point of care. That's, the, that's the, the innovation, right? Just having them in front of the provider like we have lab results and MRIs, right? Now, which one's best? So there are condition-specific surveys. Almost every condition has multiple ones to choose from. General health surveys, there's a lot. None of them, there's no randomized trial that I know of that says the SF36 is better than the EQD5, right? We're not there yet in the science of these. So the, the thing is to pick one and use it over time, right? Most of the organizations that I go to, nobody in the organization is ever going to publish a paper, right? So we're not trying to do it to, to write something that 200 of my peers are going to say is good writing. I'm trying to do it to learn over time. So pick one, right? Do a little bit of reading about what ones make sense for the condition you treat. Make sure that there's a mental health component to it because your patients that are having the hardest time making progress, if they weren't anxious and depressed before, they're going to get anxious and depressed because they're not getting better. So we need to screen for those things. So pick one and start. Tom, artificial intelligence is coming. Yes. There's a need for a human touch. Yes. We talked about efficiency. But don't you think in light of that question that just was there, can we harness the power of AI? Patients would be doing things before they show up in your office. An algorithm could be crunched already. Identification could be made already of the things that one should focus on and even direct the conversations. Won't that be the next step of Yes. Yes, and it's beautiful to, when you think about it. But then if I go someplace outside of Dartmouth and, and say, let's do the um, PHQ-2, PHQ-2, two questions. I like an app that does that. Nobody has the app. We've got to do it on paper. Right? So we're just so far from that. And then people say, well, if I don't have AI and I don't have big data, I can't do it. It's like the fifth grader can do division, right? The waiting for AI, that's the butterfly and the squirrel, right? They're distractions from what we can do now. I love the idea, and that's where I want to go, but there's so much we could do today, the rock at our feet. Well, Tom, a while back, a number of years ago, you were in an audience watching someone in the front give information <laughs> to people You've done that for us today in a great way. I thank you for being here. Thanks for having me.